With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Brendan here, and I want to tell you about a brilliant new addition to Spiked. We have launched a new daily newsletter. Every day, straight to your inbox, you'll get a roundup of all of the day's content plus exclusive commentary from the Spike team. Spike is publishing more and more, more articles, more essays, more book reviews, more podcasts. And without a doubt, the best way to keep up to date with all of our brilliant output is by signing up to the daily newsletter. It means you won't miss a thing and you can browse our content every day. So don't delay. Sign up today. Go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. It will anger a lot of people once it starts really biting into people's ability to do other things. Once you start spending, you know, twice of what you spend on the entire healthcare system every year to tackle global warming. So we're going to see a lot of social unrest and we're going to see a lot of people basically saying, I don't want this. That's the kind of thing that'll lead to societal breakdown and the sense of trust and the willingness to go along with the elites. I think we'll see much of what we've seen with Trump and many other places. It also means we don't fix the problem, actually. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Bjorn Lomborg. Bjorn is a Danish writer, commentator and sceptical environmentalist. He is president of the Copenhagen Consensus Centre, which discusses and proposes solutions to global problems based on cost-benefit analyses. He was formerly director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institute. Bjorn has made an international reputation as a reasoned, rational environmentalist. He rejects the alarmism and end-of-days fear-mongering of much of the green movement and instead argues that climate change can be reined in with economic progress and technological development. His 2001 book, The Skeptical Environmentalist, caused a huge stir. He is also author of Cool It, The Skeptical Environmentalist's Guide to Global Warming, published in 2007, and Smart Solutions to Climate Change, Comparing Costs and Benefits, published in 2010. His latest book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, so I want to talk to you about your new book, False Alarm. One of the starting points of your book is the language of apocalypse that now swirls around the issue of climate change and the idea that we are facing an imminent extinction level event. Billions of people will die. It's all doom and gloom and horror. Why did you think it was important now to write a book that challenges that narrative? Well, I mean, certainly because it's only now this has become mainstream thinking. There's a survey from uh, YouGov in 2019 asking people in 28 countries, do you think it's likely that global warming will lead to the extinction 
of the human race? I thought we'd never have that question, but it turns out that 49% of all people answered yes to that question. So literally half the world's population now believe it's likely that global warming will lead to the extinction of the human race. There's two points to that. One is that's not what the UN climate panel is mm -hmm. telling us or any of the climate science is telling us. But also, if you really believe it's the end of the world that's waiting around the corner, of course, everything else pales into insignificance. The only thing that matters is you do everything to tackle global warming. If you remember back when when that was the thing, we thought we had 12 years left to mm -hmm. live, AOC in, in the US said, and I think it's, it's, it's rational given where she comes from, she said, look, we only have 12 years left and you're worried about how we spend the money? I think that's exactly right. If, if it literally was an asteroid hurtling towards Earth and it's going to extinct us in, in 12 years, we should spend everything on sending Bruce Willis up there and, and do something about it. Right? That's the only thing that would matter. Mm. It's not. And because it's not, that matters incredibly to how we tackle global warming. Right now, we're, we're spending money like we're scared witless. And I think that is also a correct assessment of how many people see this. And that leads to really a lot of bad decisions. If we could get a more realistic account about this, global warming is a problem. It is real, but it's a problem, not an end of the world conversation. Then we could also get smarter policies. So that's the starting point for the book. And I think that's now. We've never been here, you know, five years ago. Most mm -hmm. people would have said that was that's silly. But right now, apparently people get away with saying stuff like that. Joe Biden and all his presidential contenders uh, said this is an existential problem, which, of course, means if we don't fix it, we're possibly all going to die. I want to come back to the consequences of fear, the consequences of this exaggeration, both in terms of policy and in terms of people's view of life. But before we get to that, I want to you just said there there's a line in the book as well where you say global warming is real, but it's not the end of the world. And you talk about what the science doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us we're all going to die in 12 years time. And you talk about what it does tell us in relation to the reality of global warming. So for our listeners, could you just outline how you see the science of global warming and how you see the, the issue of global warming? So just to be very clear, I'm not a physical scientist. I'm, a, I'm an economist, and I actually pretend economist because I'm a political scientist. <laughs> but let's leave it at that. So the science, I, I simply take this from the UN Climate Panel, and I think they, you know, everyone, even the Guardian, will say this is the gold standard of climate understanding. They try to wrap their heads around what all these thousands and tens of thousands of researchers are telling us. There is an issue because as we emit more CO2, mostly from fossil fuels, we heat up the planet, and that's going to be mostly bad for the world. Now, the science part is simply we emit this many tons of CO2, and that will lead to this much warming. So, you know, let's say three or four degrees by the end of the century, higher temperatures on average. The real issue, of course, is how is that actually going to impact us? And that's what climate economics do and many of the impact studies that try to look at how much is that going to affect us. I think the fundamental problem that people have to wrap their heads around is this is not going to lead to hurricanes that are somehow you know, going to swallow everything we know or make everyone have heat deaths. It's much more prosaic than that. Fundamentally, if you look at cities like Helsinki and, and Athens, they live in very different climates, and they live pretty mm -hmm. well in both of those climates. Mm -hmm. you know, Helsinki is adjusted to cold. Uh, Athens reasonably adjusted to heat. If any of those cities experienced any change from their historical 
temperature, both if it got colder or if it got warmer, it would constitute a cost for them because they would no longer be optimally adapted to their climates. That's really what climate change is about. It is that we have built all of our infrastructure to an existing climate, then it changes, and that gives us a problem. That is something we need to pay real money, real resources to fix. Look, for instance, when sea levels rise, we built all the way down to, you know, the water's edge many places. It's a really, really beautiful place to be because, you know, nobody can build in front of you. But when sea levels rise, that's going to constitute a problem. Hmm. Now, many people, again, believe that's going to be the end of the world. You know, it's sort of this deluge kind of thinking from the... Uh, Old Testament. But the reality, of course, is we know how to deal with this. The best example is the Dutch, who've been doing this for centuries. And, you know, remember about 40% of Holland is below sea level. This used to be true. There's a lot of things that used to be true in, before COVID, right? Amsterdam airport used to be the world's 14th largest airport. Now everything is zero, right? <laughs> but the 14th largest airport in the world is, what, three meters below sea level? There used to be a sea battle where that airport is constituted. It's probably the only large airport that's ever had a sea battle conducted on top of it. That just tells you this is something we can handle, we know how to handle, and we handle it fairly inexpensively. That's what I want people to get because it can stop us from being the scared that we end up, you know, just throwing all the money we can at it. And also, as you alluded to, it is a quality of life issue. Mm. I mean, it, it must be terrible for those kids that are growing up literally believing that they might not be alive when they become adults because of global warming. Now, if I were one of those kids, I would be out there screaming on the, on the streets as well and saying, you got to do something. You got to stop all the power plants because that's the only way I'm going to survive. If you really believe that, that makes sense. Unfortunately, or fortunately, actually, it turns out that that's untrue. Mm. There's a line in your book, and it's testament to the panic culture of fear that exists today, that I found this line quite shocking, where you describe global warming as a manageable problem. And I can't remember the last time I heard a political figure or an environmental campaign or any other public figure really describe global warming in those kind of cool-headed terms as a manageable issue, something that is a problem facing humanity, but the one that we can live with, adapt to, fix, devote resources to, and so on. What do you think tipped us over the edge into seeing climate change as something more than that? So in your mm -hmm. book, you go through all the catastrophic texts that have come out in recent years about the end of the world, field notes from a catastrophe, the truth about the coming climate catastrophe, all these books that stock uh, in bookshops around the world. Of course, The Guardian has now changed its house style so that it no longer refers to climate change, but instead refers to the climate emergency. This constant heating up, if you'll excuse the pun, of the language and the fear what do you think dragged us from recognizing that global warming is a problem towards a world in which we see it as this, as you say, an asteroid heading to Earth? I think there's two things to, to answer. First, it's important to emphasize why this is a manageable problem. This is what climate economics have been spending the last 30 years of their existence in trying to estimate how much of a problem is global warming. And let me just you know, give you an example I also use this in the book. If you look at sea level rise, sea levels will probably, in the worst case outcome, rise close to a meter by the end of the century. That's not an unproblematic number. And if you just sort of take the ISO curves of the planet, so basically say, let's take the planet as it is today, let's rise the sea levels by one meter, how many people are going to drown? 
That's actually a significantly large number. It, it turns out in one of these models that keep being repeated over and over again, it was a big headline uh, in Washington Post and many other places, is 187 million people are going to get flooded. The reality, of course, is they have to move there. I mean, this is not going to happen o- overnight mm. or anything. But, you know, the, the easiest thing in Rolling Stones actually said that this could, you know, drown 187 million people. It assumes that we're going to do nothing mm. over the next 80 years. Mm. We're not going to take any page from the Dutch, but just simply say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just going to drown here. Mm. The reality, of course, is, and this is one of the big models that have done this. They've done this with three models and five climate models and all that stuff. They've basically said, what is realistic adaptation? Now, both you see better adaptation as you get richer, just simply because you don't want to get flooded as much and because you can afford so, just like we have better highway security and everything else. You will have higher dikes, and I'm just using dikes as a shorthand for all the different measures that you do to keep yourself protected. You will have higher dikes simply because you're richer. You'll also, of course, have higher dikes because you are more vulnerable now Mm. because sea levels have risen. If you assume that, What they find is that instead, by the end of the century, of seeing 187 million people being flooded, it will be 15,000 people, which is actually orders of magnitude less. Right now, Mm. about 3 million people get flooded every year around the world. How is that possible? Well, because we know how to build dikes and all these other protective measures incredibly cheaply, not with no cost, it will still cost. So just to give you a sense, we'll actually have to triple our cost on dikes from about $11 billion as we're paying today to about $36 billion. And we will also see more damages. That's mostly because there'll be much more stuff to damage. So even though we'll see very few people getting flooded, we'll still see damage costs that are going to be higher. But because our economy is also going to be much, much higher, we'll actually go from a situation where about today we lose 0.05% of our GDP globally to flooding to down to 0.008%. So almost 10 times less. This seems totally impossible. And mm. actually, if you then take the 187 million that I just talked about, the sort of scary stuff, that turns out to be about 5.4% of GDP. It's in the trillions of dollars because basically if sea levels rose a meteor, almost a meteor, and nobody did anything about it, of course, we'd get flooded all the time. So, you know, no rocket science here. But the trick is to remember, everyone tells you about the 187 million people mm. who are going to get flooded, the $55 trillion that we're going to suffer, the 5% of GDP that we're going to suffer. Nobody tells you that with realistic assumptions about adaptation, which is just simply saying people are actually going to be smart over the next 80 years and do just like they have done. We will see less people flooded. We will see lower GDP damage, not higher. This just seems incomprehensible to most people. And and that's to your question. So one is the economics of climate change have tried to add up all those numbers. And what they find is the total cost of global warming by the end of the century is probably in the order of three to 4% of GDP. That's what I mean by a manageable number. Mm. It's not zero, but it's not 100. Mm. And it's a lot less 100 than it is zero. So that's the point. This is a manageable problem. Mm. Remember, by that time, by the UN's own estimates, we'll be 450% as rich as we are today. So instead of being 450% as rich, we will only be 434% as rich. I'm just taking all these numbers very literally. And of mm. course, you can't do that. It's you know order of magnitude points. But the issue here is to say, if you actually were honest, you'd be saying 
by the end of the century, we will only be 434% as rich and not 450% as rich. Nobody would run around and say, oh my God, we're all going to die. It is simply a question of saying we'll be slightly less well off. It'll be slightly less much better. That's a very, very different (laughs) approach. That's what the climate economics is telling us very, very clearly. The only guy to get the Nobel Prize from climate economics, William Nordhaus, who got it in 2018, these are his numbers. That's his numbers I use all the way through the book. So this is absolutely uncontroversial. Then, And your question, why is it we Mm. then believe the opposite? Because it makes so much better headlines. Mm. As you just emphasized, if I were the Guardian or if I was anyone trying to sell a paper or get a click, I would show you how terrible things are going to get. And it's very, very easy to generate those headlines. It's much, much harder to actually say, hey, wait, hold on just a minute. Because remember, we would have generated the same headlines a hundred years ago, right? We would have said, we'd have run out of all this stuff. We actually did that 50 years ago. We thought we were going to run out of everything. It was very easy to say, we're going to run out of oil, gold, aluminum, whatever. It turned out they were wrong, all of these predictions. In 1980, Carter told us that we would have lost a fifth of all species on the planet Earth by the year 2000. Of course, that didn't happen. The UN told us that because of climate change and many other problems, by the year 2000, the world would be a bad off as if we'd had a full nuclear exchange. No, we weren't. Mm -hmm. And and this is worth dwelling a little bit on Mm -hmm. because it's so easy to say, but it just turns out to not be true. And we know so because we already have the models that tell us this is going to be a 3 to 4% problem, not a 100% problem. Now, why does this keep being repeated? Well, partly because of the newspapers that just get lots of clicks and it's an easy thing to sell. I think there's also something inside of us that loves this the end of the world. It makes us live in exciting times. Remember what I told you about Helsinki and Athens. Mm. It's boring to talk about. So how do we adapt you know, <laughs> air conditioners in Helsinki? It's much more fun to say, how do we save humanity? I mean, I want to be part of the saving humanity, not how, how do we fix Helsinki with air conditioning? It doesn't sound nearly as mm. much fun. So it doesn't make us feel like we're part of this mission of our generation. And then lastly, I think it's important to recognize that politicians' main job is to get reelected. That's certainly how they see themselves. One of the problems is that you can only give stuff to so many people before you run out of money and then you have to raise taxes and that makes a lot of other people annoyed. So your problem really is how do you get more than half of all people in the electorate to like you without spending too much money? One of the ways, and climate change is unique in this way, is that you get to promise the best of everything, namely that I will save you from death and despair for money that will be spent in the future, right? So you basically get to say, you are all going to die unless you <laughs> vote for me. I will save you. And what's more, I will save you with promises in 2050, which fortunately I don't actually have to pay for. That's the ideal setup for politicians. So clearly politicians will jump on this bandwagon because it gives justification for them. They can say, your opponent doesn't care about your life, but I do. I mm. will save you. That's just, you know, that's catnip for politicians. <laughs> I think that's a very apt description of contemporary politics and the contemporary media, both of which 
have a vested interest in exaggerating the threat of climate change, either to sell papers or to get reelected. Brendan, sorry, can I just, and, and this is not just, you know, for climate change. If you talk to them about education policies, you know, our schools suck and, and we need to give, you know, if you ask the teachers, we need to give the teachers more money or we need to get harder on how teachers teach or, you know, healthcare, we don't have enough money for our hospitals and we, the staff is all running around. They're, This is inherent in all areas. So again, climate is just the biggest because it has the most scary outcome and it is the most money. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. I was going to ask if alongside the political and media approach to climate change and the vested interest that they clearly have in, in playing this up, is there something else too? Is there a broader culture of anti-humanism, misanthropy, this, this view of humanity as a destructive force or as a plague as some people refer to it even the sainted david attenborough has referred to humanity as a plague on the planet i wonder if underpinning a lot of the catastrophism that you write about and the apocalyptic outlook is not simply the thrill that comes from believing we live in end times and that if we don't drive to the supermarket so often maybe we can do our bit to save the world but also a view of humankind as destructive of nature, too interfering with nature, and too hubristic and needing to learn to be more humble. I think all of those things are partly true. Remember, any big societal conversation as global warming is will attract everyone from everywhere and they will all sort of say you know i have my own little thing and i'm going to make you tell you why you should fund me and call it climate change right so so everyone will have their own little agendas about all these things there's definitely some leftover if you look back in the again in the 1970s mm. the concern about us not being able to feed the planet was i think a real concern but it was also a little bit this is nature's way to call us to get humanity down to a manageable size which might be you know one billion or a few billion but certainly not this many people and look some of this is this was mostly biologists taking over the standard sort of uh, view of lemmings those kinds of models can also be used for for humans of course the big difference is that humans are actually good at adapting and and we've shown that in a lot of different ways but i i think some of it is you know just professional you tend to think in certain models some people definitely believe that we're 
too many and we, we're too rich and we're too well off and it shouldn't be, be that way. But I, I think most of the people that I debate are actually just people who really want to do good for the world. They've taken over mm. a little bit of the old thinking that came from the 1970s. It's probably also because we have too many people here. David Attenborough is probably one of those was sort of unexamined priors uh, in the back of his mind as well. But I think most of this is simply because if you take climate on face value, for instance, I, I'm just doing on my Twitter stream a, a few of these. You know how, how we're going to get more malaria because of, of global warming? That's very contestable. Mm. But let's just say, so World Health Organization actually make it, made an estimate for that, that we might see, you know, 30, 50,000 more people die from malaria every year because of global warming. But what that neglects is that usually we have, you know, millions of people dying from it and it's dramatic de decline. And so, and they never show that, of course, in, in graphics. But if you actually show what the World Health Organization estimate for malaria out to 2060, we'll see declining and declining and declining levels of malaria simply because as humans get richer, they elect governments that actually make sure you don't have as much of an epidemic and they personally can afford medication, which means they don't transmit malaria, which is one of the reasons why, even though you know England is well-suited for malaria, you don't have malaria. And when people fly mm -hmm. in with malaria, it gets stopped because once you get rich enough, you don't have malaria. So the reality is, even if you look at the numbers, even if you accept their models, what happens is malaria gets less and less, but slightly less good. You know, so things get better and better, but slightly slower because of global warming. Mm. That's a very different message from the one that you hear, which is global warming will make more malaria. And somehow that very easily gets translated into we're all going to die from malaria. And, and likewise, if you then multiply this by a thousand different stories, which are all telling the same half truth, which is there is a problem, but doesn't put it in context. You end up with this scare. So I, th I think most people are acting rationally. You know, when you look at Greta Thunberg, for instance, and, and all her compatriots that are, you know, basically scared teenagers. I understand them when I when I talk to them. My impression is they really believe that there's a good chance that they're not going to get to be adulthood because of global warming. If you think that, it makes a lot of sense to just simply say, we got to go all in on climate change. Mm. You need to get the sense of proportion. And that's why this conversation is so hard. I'm sure there's some rotten apples in this, but mostly from good intentions, but perhaps not totally well informed. In relation to people being well informed. One of the striking things in your book, and you've written about this before too, is that the culture of fear we're currently living through, the false alarm, the panic about the end of the world, it coexists with the reality that life has never been better for humankind. We have a longer life expectancy, we have better living conditions, there are higher levels of literacy. Could you just say a bit about how much things have improved? I mean, simply from the point of view that we very rarely hear these stories. And I think it's quite an important part of understanding why climate change will not be the catastrophe people say it will. When we look at the objective markers of what matters for humanity, the UN will typically say it's about wealth, it's about health, and it's about the environment. And if you look at those three pointers, when you look at wealth, we have gone from a world in 1820, where we have the first good data, where about 95% of humanity was below what we today call the extremely poor people, the, the thing that's usually known as a dollar a day. And we used to all be incredibly poor. 
Today, that number is down below 10%. It's actually gone up. It used to be 7% in 2019. It's probably gone up to 8 or maybe even 9% because of COVID. But it will go down again, and we're estimating it'll be close to zero by mid-century. That is an incredible achievement. You know, China has lifted over 25 years, lifted more than 600 million people out of poverty. How amazing in, in any respect. That's just outstanding opportunity. At the same time, we live much longer, you know, so health as you as you mentioned, I don't think we appreciate the fact that just over the last 120 years, in 1900, the average life expectancy on the planet Earth was about 30 years. Today, we live 72 years on average. We have got more than two lifetimes. It should blow mm. our minds. And again, <laughs> the UN expect that we're going to be living a lot longer into the future. And if you look at environment, Perhaps the best indicator, the most killing environmental problem in 1900 was indoor air pollution. We don't think about that. But remember, how did most people keep warm in 1900? By having coal inside their houses. Now, that was a rich world phenomenon. Most people around the world, still about 3 billion people, do this. They cook and keep warm with dirty fuels like wood, cardboard, dung. This means that about 3 billion people on this planet right now have this much air pollution, that it's equivalent to smoking two packs of cigarettes every day. That's why, you know, two, three, four million people, there's a lot of different estimates somehow, many millions die each year from indoor air pollution. We basically eradicated that rich world because we stopped doing that, because that's what happens when you can afford to have an electric kitchen. And we will also see that being entirely eradicated. We'll also see outdoor air pollution eventually be fixed as people get richer. We've seen that getting fixed in London. It will also eventually get fixed in, in Delhi. And that's why we need to look at what is the UN telling us will likely happen by the end of the century. They've made these prognoses. So as you mentioned, we've gone from a world where a lot of people, it's about 40% were illiterate in 1900. Uh, now it's about 15%. By the end of the century, it'll be close to zero. We've had a world where we used to live to 30. Now we live to 72. By the end of the century, we'll probably live to close to 100. We've gone from a world where we had very, very little, most of us was poor, to very few people are actually extremely poor, but we'll actually get to a world where everyone is what we think of as middle income and above. Mm -hmm. How is that not amazing? Now, I know that most people will then say, but global warming, and that's a mm -hmm. good comeback. But that's where you need to get a sense of proportion. Yes, if you get to say, so the UN estimate that the average person in the developing world will have an income of about $80,000 per person per year in 2100. That's a lot of money. Remember, right now it's about, mm. what, $10,000 or thereabouts. So that's an eightfold increase. That sounds almost fantastic. But of course, that's what happened over our last century. And they know how to, you know, catch up to us much easier than we knew how to just forge this new path. So this is what the UN estimate in its standard scenario. And because of global warming, instead of being 80,000, it will feel like, you know, and I'm just saying this roughly, $78,000. Yes, that is slightly worse, but from an incredibly much better baseline. That's what we need to get our head around. The world will be much, much better. But because of global warming, it'll get much, much better, slightly slower. That's a problem. I would like it to get better faster. So we should also fix global warming. But that's a hell of a long way from the asteroid hurtling towards Earth. That's a really useful way of describing it. And it brings me on to 
something else I wanted to ask you about, which is the impact of this apocalyptic thinking, because I've long thought that it has a dire impact on numerous areas of life. The first one I want to touch on with you is the impact that it has on the next generation. And you you open your book by quoting a placard that was being held by a child protesting against climate change or climate catastrophe. And it said, you'll die of old age, I'll die of climate change. And if you think back to the school strike protests of the past couple of years, I saw some of them in London. I met many young people who genuinely believe, really truly believe that they won't get to old age because they'll be swept away by floods, the heat death of the planet or whatever else it might be. Do you think the adults in the green movement or the adults in the political sphere, do you think they think about the consequences that their fearful project is having on the young? Or do you think this is another part of them being driven by good intentions and they believe that ratcheting up fear will drive action when very often it can have the opposite consequence? All of these are partly true. So I think And again, this is not something I've studied. So this is just based on my personal experiences. Most of these people are really, really worried, both in the adult movement. And it seems to me that as you stay longer and longer inside this group, you get more and more worried. So everybody talks each other up. And it used to be that sea levels would rise between, you know, 30 to 86 centimeters. That's what the UN climate panel is telling us. I just mentioned a meter because it's, it's sort of unfashionable. If you say less than a meter, it sounds like you're not really serious. And most mm. people now sort of say two meters, which is just simply outside the realm of reason. There's a tiny, tiny bit of argument that could make this plausible. But it's just become sort of standard in the environmental movement. Mm. I understand if you spend your life within that movement, you eventually end up saying two meters. You eventually end up believing all of these bad things. It's just easier to sort of go with it and, you know, just say worse and worse things. And so in that sense, I think they're just, they, they feel like they're just informing the kids. I think they're phenomenally wrong. And I think there is a reason why our climate economics show that the impact is three, four percent. And one of the big points in my book is really walking people through this in a lot of different ways. Because most of my experiences, people are like, how is that possible? You know, when I add up all the catastrophes, and I'm just characterizing all the catastrophes I've seen on Guardian, how could that possibly fit within three to four percent? And that's absolutely right. If you try to add up, I've never done that. I'm not sure you could, but that would probably add up to many hundreds of percent, right? Mm -hmm. It would just be, you know, wiped out many times over. But the reality is that just like we talked about with the sea level rise, most of these are dramatically exaggerated. So for instance, when you look at the impact of hurricanes, hurricanes are uh, some of the most damaging extreme weather we have on the planet, and it really causes an enormous amount of damage. Remember, they used to be much, much more deadly, but they Mm. almost kill nobody today. So when you look at how many people die from climate-related disasters, it turns out I have this great graph that explodes people's heads. If you look at the best data that we have over the last 100 years, disasters in the 1920s, climate disasters of floods, droughts, heat and cold waves and and, uh, storms, killed about half a million people every year in the 1920s. Last decade, it killed about 17,000 people. Remember, we've also become four times as many people on the planet. Mm. So your death risk is reduced by more than 99%. In 2020, it was only 8,000. So it's not such that we die more and more. Because we get better off, we die less and less. And when you look at the damage 
that climate change will do from, for instance, more hurricanes. It is that it will damage more of the stuff that we have. Yes, because we're richer and richer, it'll damage more stuff. But if you take it in percent of GDP, we're likely to see less damage because we get smarter at protecting our stuff compared to the more damage we're going to get from climate change. Most climate models show that we'll actually see fewer hurricanes, which is better, but more strong hurricanes, which is worse, and the strong outweigh the fewer. So that's why we will see a little more damage overall, but because we're much better able to handle it. The best estimates show that right now, hurricanes damage globally 0.04% of GDP. By the end of the century, had we not had global warming, it would be 0.01. But because we have global warming, it'll only be reduced to 0.02. There's a couple of things here to take away. It'll get better, but not as much better as it would have been without global warming. And also 0.01 or 0.02 or 0.04 is really, really small numbers. It is just not a big part of the whole experience of humanity. It's a big part of CNN because this is what gets you pictures, right? So CNN is out there with pictures with camera crews everywhere where a hurricane might hit. And, and I understand that. And that it makes good financial sense for CNN to do that. And all other, it, this is not to punk CNN by any means for all these uh, channels to do it, but it doesn't give us a good understanding of the fact that hurricanes right now cost 0.04% of GDP. And by the end of the century, they'll cost 0.02, even despite the fact that climate change will actually make them mm. harsher. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. I want to talk to you now about the impact of the apocalyptic thinking on policy, because that that's a core part of your book, and I think that's an incredibly important issue for people to understand, which is, you mentioned AOC earlier, if we have 12 years left before the planet fries or whatever, that will warp how people understand the future and that will warp how people make policy priorities and funding priorities and economic choices. And that is becoming increasingly apparent uh, as a consequence of climate apocalypse, that it's having a warping effect on policy, which is becoming less and less rational. So could you just say something about how this notion that we're heading very quickly towards an end of world event, how that 
distracts our attention from making cool, rational choices in, in relation to policy. Yeah. So, so I think it's very obvious in the way that we have now most developed democracies have in one way or another said they're going to reduce their carbon emissions to zero by 2050. Mm. There's no economic estimates of this because nobody thought we'd be that stupid, right? Nobody actually <laughs> believed that we were going to do that. And now, of course, they're catching up. So New Zealand, which was one of the first uh, nations to do so, actually, and, and much to their credit, asked their preeminent economic institute to say, how much is this going to cost us? And they told him 16% of GDP every year if you do it really, really well, which, of course, we, we know we've never done that before with climate policy. So that's very unlikely to be the outcome. 16% of GDP by 2050 every year. That's a lot of resources mm. that we're now spending on climate. Now, remember, by 2050, the impact of global warming is much less than 2%. And, and this is only very roughly so. If, if I did it more accurately, the argument would be even stronger. But this, you know, we're trying to do this within an hour. <laughs> so we're basically saying let's spend 16% to avoid less than a 2% problem. That's a very bad deal. Mm. And I think there's two things that will come out of this. One is that will spend an enormous amount of money. It will anger a lot of people once it starts really biting into people's ability to do other things. Once you start spending, you know, twice of what you spend on the entire healthcare system every year to tackle global warming, people are going to start getting dissatisfied probably way before that. So we're going to see a lot of social unrest, you know, sort of yellow vests in France. And we're going to see a lot of people basically saying, I don't want this. I'm not willing to do that. You know, take Biden, he's promised to spend $1,500 on climate change every year per person in the U.S. The average person says that they're not willing to spend $24 per year on climate change. There's just a big disconnect between how much we're willing to spend and how much politicians are willing to spend. And eventually, that is going to lead us to a breaking point. I think that's the kind of thing that'll lead to societal breakdown and the sense of trust mm. in the willingness to go along with the elites. I think we'll see much of what we've seen with Trump and many other places. This, the sense that you are just simply going to vote for politicians who will probably unreasonably and incorrectly be saying global warming is not a problem at all. You know, the Bolsonaro's mm. of this world and just say, vote for me. But a lot of people will do it just simply because they're so annoyed that you've wasted all this money. So I think there's a real chance that by spending money badly, we'll not only waste a lot of money, we'll actually end up in a place where this is not sustainable. And hence, even all that money spent will not lead to the policies that people who are advocating it hope that would come out of it. But of course, the second part of that answer is it also means we don't fix the problem actually. Look, any problem that is big there's sort of two obvious ways to do it. One is to tell everyone, I'm sorry, could you all stop doing that so we don't have this problem? That typically is not a very obvious way to get people to do it because it asks everyone to do something they like to do to stop doing that. So, you know, if you take mm. Los Angeles in the 1950s, it was a terribly polluted place, partly because they, you know, their special geographical setting, but because they had lots of cars that emitted lots and lots of pollutants and they just stayed there. So one obvious way would be to say, I'm sorry, could everybody just you know, stop driving and start biking? Not surprisingly, that would never fly in Los Angeles. What did fly was innovation. A guy innovated the catalytic converter in 1974. You plug it on your car. It costs four or $500, so it's not free or anything, but you plug it on your car 
And then it basically stops emitting pollution. That's not entirely true, but roughly, right? It's like 90, 95%, 98% less. And that's why Los Angeles is much, much cleaner, although people drive mm. a lot more than they used to do in the 1950s. The simple point here is, if you try to tell people, I'm sorry, could you do with less? You will never succeed. If you try to come up with an innovation that means that they can do all the stuff they like, but without the negative impacts, they'll, of course, adopt it, especially if it's fairly cheap. That's why the point that I try to make, and this is not just me, we we assembled a group of 27 of the world's top climate economists, three Nobel laureates, to try and look at where can you actually get the most bang for your buck uh, in climate. What they found was, spend money on innovation is the best long-term strategy. If we spent a lot more money on innovation, someone along the line would eventually innovate a green energy type that would be cheaper than mm. fossil fuels. Once you have that, everyone will switch, not just rich, well-meaning British people, but everyone, the Chinese, the Africans, the Indians, everybody else. So the real trick here is because we're so focused on the upcoming catastrophe, we spend all our money badly. We set our, ourselves up to fall and maybe also, you know, societal breakdown and all that bad stuff. Instead of focusing on spending money more effectively on climate innovation, that would actually allow us to fix the problem, not just for well-meaning rich worlders, but for everyone. You mentioned there the political tensions that could potentially blow up as a consequence of some of the irrational policies that have been pursued to offset the climate catastrophe and the gilets jaunes and other forces like that. I wonder if you think there is a, a class element to some of this politics of climate change, not consciously, but it does often seem that some green campaigners or some climate change activists seem to not have a full appreciation of the impact of their proposed policies on less well-off people in particular, whether that is, you know, raising energy prices in the West or, you know, stultifying development in the developing world. Do you think there will come a point when people recognise that environmentalism as it currently exists in its catastrophic form plays a, a, a detrimental role, particularly in the lives of working class and poorer people? I think that's very likely to happen. Yes. And when you look at it, when I get to New York, I'm, I'm astounded by the number of people who will tell me, you know, sure, gasoline should cost, you know, $20 per gallon or you know, lots of money, basically. And, and that's easy. If you live in a city where you don't have a car and you have a well-functioning mm -hmm. metro system, of course you can say that. New York Times did a, a study, you know, this poor uh, county in uh, Alabama where people on average spent almost a quarter of their income on driving to get their, to their jobs. That would, of course, be absolutely detrimental. And it's easy for people to say we should pay more for our energy if you don't really notice how much you pay for your energy. But when you're running out of money, then clearly that matters a lot. I'm often struck by the sense that people don't understand, by far the most people around the world, die from cold, not from heat. And, and that's because heat is sort of a, a thing that happens in those days where there's a heat wave, but cold typically kills you over months because you're poorly warmed and it's much, much harder to keep you better heated. Uh, we have this wonderful study from, from the US when, when they got fracking, people who gas became cheaper. And when you use gas for heating, you could basically see what's the death impact of having cheaper gas. What turned out was people would, not surprisingly, heat their homes better. And 11,000 people didn't die every year because of cold deaths, because gas was cheaper. If you ramp gas prices up, which is one of the things, many things that we'll have to do with climate policy, you're obviously going to kill those people again. 
again, I'm not saying, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There are trade-offs. And, and some of this we should do because climate is a problem, but we should remember to weigh it up against the other issues. And when you don't, you will end up in a situation where this is a class issue. I think, though, we could very easily get wrapped up in, in the poor and the rich world issue. But of course, the real challenge is the poor and the poor world. The fact that, mm. you know, we're talking to one and a half billion people who are reasonably well off, but there's, you know, more than six billion people out there who want to be well off. And we're mm. basically telling them, sorry, you're too late. You'll just have to live with, you know, being in relative poverty. Sure, you can, you know, do web development for us, but, you know, uh, with wind turbines sort of thing. And the reality is they're not long term going to live with that. I think we're we're entering this very dangerous phase where the EU has very clearly said we're going to do carbon tax against everyone who doesn't do what we say they should do, which is really a way to push the cost of EU climate policies on third world countries. Mm -hmm. And we're probably going to see Biden join that. But I think we're also going to see China, India, African countries say, screw you eventually and say, well, let's see who has the biggest market. And yes, in the short run, they will probably lose out on this. But I think they also recognize that there's no way they can keep their populations in better conditions unless they embrace a lot of cheap fuel, which often will come from fossil fuels. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands, and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus, creator meetups, networking, and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. I want to ask you about the the willingness to actually solve the climate change problem and whether there is why there might be a lack of willingness to actually fix it. Now, I don't mean this in a conspiratorial sense. I don't mean politicians and media people and green activists sit around saying, you know, we have to keep this scare going for as long as possible. But it is undoubtedly true that when sceptical environmentalists like yourself or eco-modernists and other people, when they propose very practical solutions, which involve sometimes promoting the virtues of nuclear power, for example, they are often shot down. They are accused of being industry stooges. They are accused of underestimating the terrible impact that nuclear power has on the planet and on people. How would you explain the unwillingness of people who are very concerned about fossil fuels and our use of fossil fuels and the impact that they currently have? How do you explain their unwillingness to embrace what would be cleaner forms of energy and at the same time, energy that would provide resources to vast numbers of human beings Mm. like nuclear. 
So, look, I think nuclear is a great example of how uh, insincere a lot of the conversation in climate is. I should just say up front, I actually don't think that nuclear is this wonderful opportunity, not because it's not safe. It's one of the safest op- options we have. It is simply because right now in the developed world, nuclear is just very, very expensive. Mm. The UK is experiencing that itself with this, you know, the, the nuclear power plant that keeps getting more and more expensive. There's a lot of ways that we technologically could get around that. And I hope that the fourth generation nuclear power is going to be a lot cheaper. And that could just simply be the innovation that we're waiting for. Imagine if nuclear power, the fourth generation nuclear power was incredibly safe, which I think it can be, but also incredibly cheap, just undercutting mm. all you know fossil fuels and also solar and wind and everything. And of course, it's base load power. It'd be worth a lot more. You know, we'd be done. That'd be wonderful. And that's where you see the insincerity, because a lot of people would say, it's the end of the world, but I don't want to do stuff that I don't agree with sort mm. of ideologically. If you really believed it was the end of the world, nuclear is the only thing that we can use right now to power the planet and have very little CO2 emissions. That seems incontrovertible to me. And the fact that people don't want to embrace it seems that they are not as sincere when they say it's the end of the world. I'm always very struck by the fact that most people seem to be saying it's the end of the world. That's why I want to keep pushing and push even harder for all the policies that have failed for the last 30 years. Mm. That that doesn't seem to mash up with being really, really concerned. You want some of the policies that have worked, like, for instance, France dash to nuclearization. One of the things that you have had personal experience of, and I know many people have had similar experiences, is in relation to the difficulty of talking about this issue and the difficulty of dissenting from the mainstream uh, media consensus. You will be called a climate change denier. You will be accused of having been bought off by big business. There, There will always be this search for an ulterior motive as to why you are saying these things, or simply you will be branded you know, a denier of reality, someone who can't face up to the scientific truth. And, you know, moves are being made to prevent those kinds of people from having a platform, from getting airtime, from speaking at universities, as as you all know. How do you explain that censorious culture? Do you think this is part of their honest but deluded conviction that the world really is ending, which would make certain people potentially dangerous if they came out and said the world isn't ending? Or do you think this is an attempt to guard their ideological terrain from anyone, including you, who would dare to raise questions that they would find difficult and awkward? I think it's hard to talk about the unified they. So I, I think mm. there's a lot of different motivations. My sense is that obviously it's it's a lot easier to handle uh, dissent by just simply getting rid of it. So mm. you know, anyone would love the opportunity to simply be able to not have that conversation and just get on with what we really worry about. You know, all of us are in agreement we need much more wind turbines and much more solar panels. It's just really a question of whether they should be the one square meter or the two square meter solar panels. That's the kind of you know conversation that I think most people in that uh, part of the discussion would love. And so I, I understand why it's why it's an easy way to you know, jump ahead. And obviously, if you believe that you're right, why would you want to listen to people who are obviously spewing falsehoods? I think mm. I think it goes much further. So. When you talk to most people, when, yeah, and even many of my friends, they're so like, they have a hard time 
tackling the fact that they know that I'm not a dumb guy and I'm not, you know, usually prone to being an incredible liar, that I'm saying this that is so different from what they read every day. Yeah. And so I, you yeah. know, I get in and I explain, you know, give me some, something that you think and let me explain to you why that is. But it is hard when, when sort of the whole setup is end of the world, end of the world, end of the world everywhere. And when you look at each one of these studies, they're actually not saying that at all, or, or they're, you know, incredibly misleading in the sense that they, there's this one study, I don't know if you saw half a year ago, that came out and said, how many people would be flooded? If you not only don't assume that we don't have increasing levels of sea protection, but assume that we tore out all the existing protections, so tore out all our dikes around the world. I get why they did it because it's much, much easier to just do if you're a, most of a natural scientist because all those, we don't have all these dikes well mapped. We do have all the, you know, levels on the planet because you just get that from a satellite. So it's much easier just simply to think of the world as a, as a bathtub and raise the sea level and see what happens kind of thing. But it's just not very useful for the mayor of London to say, what would happen if you <laughs> pulled out all your protections and the London barrier mm. and everything? Here's what, yeah, it makes for great headline, but it's just not. Mm relevant in any reasonable sense. Now, it may be good for the academia, and please, I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing these studies, but we shouldn't be reporting on them because they're just simply silly in any realistic setting. But that makes it very, very hard. I think that it is a real problem that, that a lot of people want to keep this conversation out mm. of the debate, and I can understand them because you know, if you just sort of cursorily heard about what Bjorn is saying, and if you really, really strongly believe the world is ending, it must sound like there's something wrong with this guy. You know, they, they, yeah. he's just simply hell-bent intent on telling you the other <laughs> way around. And that's why I think it is so crucial to point out, look, there's two parts of climate science. One is the natural science. That's the UN climate panel, the IPC. The other one is climate economics. So one is about what is physically happening. We put out more CO2. What will the temperature rise be? What will the sea level rise be? And so on. The other one is how will that impact us? The other part, the climate economics, the IPC fairly quickly on already in 1998 decided we're not going to actually tackle that. But there's a very large and vibrant academic culture, and that's what got the Nobel Prize in 2018. We have all this information. And it feels to me that a lot of people are actively embracing the IPC, although they often say they're too timid, which I just find as a bad excuse of trying to be a little too alarmist. But they are actively ignoring the climate economics. So in that sense, I think the real problem is that we have not managed to merge the natural science with the social science conversation on global warming. But we need both in order to make good decisions. And the reason why we haven't embraced the other part is, of course, because that's the one that says global warming by the end of the century will be a three to four percent problem if we do nothing. That's not nothing, but it's not in any reasonable way comparable to what you read in the papers. And that I think is why, and, and I think we need to get that message out much, much further. And of course, I'm, I'm doing what I can to do that, but get the message out that you're hearing all these singular studies on sea level rise, on hurricanes or on heat deaths and all this stuff. Much of it is right under the given circumstances, but often vastly misleading in the, in the way that it's been presented and stuff. But you need to square that with when you add all all of this, it'll only add up to 3 to 
that's why you should be a little skeptical about all of the stuff you hear. Absolutely. It would be remiss of me not to ask you about the current predicament we all find ourselves in, which is life in a pandemic. And I wanted to ask you what consequences you think the COVID era will have on the climate change discussion. I mean, I think at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I thought that some of the sillier political claims of the pre-COVID era might be kept in check. You know, we might suddenly realise that there are sometimes threats to human health, which will require society to behave in a particular way. And we might forget about all the pretend catastrophes that we've been force-fed over the previous few years. But it seems increasingly likely to me that the opposite might happen. And there are already people talking about the possibility of climate lockdowns. Perhaps we could take forward these kinds of emergency measures into the future and use them to prevent people from driving so much, from flying so much, and so on. What do you think will be the the impact of the past year on the kinds of issues that you've been writing about? Let me just first share with you my failed prediction. I thought the fact that we didn't tackle COVID very well. So we did some of the the first cost-benefit analyses on COVID management in third world countries. So in Malawi and Ghana and Nigeria, some of these other countries, where we basically showed what, what everyone knows now is that shutdowns, while they might be sensible in rich countries, are really, really bad ideas in poor countries, partly because they have very many fewer Old people, so they're much less vulnerable. They have very little capacity in their hospital system. So virtually any policy will still breach the capacity. That was the lowering the, the curve under the capacity of the, of the healthcare system. That was the whole sort of argument that we had in the first part. It's very, very hard to do in developing countries. And the costs are going to be phenomenally large, especially for the poorest in, in these communities. So what we showed was while shutdown lockdowns might be a good idea in the first world, it's very, very Clearly not in the in the poor world. We saw that very badly with Modi and his shutdown of India, which was just you know horrendous in all, almost all kinds of ways. So that it would actually show making bad decisions have really large consequences. Let's not do that. I thought we could you know reflect that over to climate, and I totally agree. We're not going to get there. I think there's a number of things people have realized that. It actually is fun to be able to drive. It actually is fun to be able to, mm. you know, fly. It actually is stuff that I'm not willing to give up on. So I, I think we will certainly have some good outcomes. You know, you and I don't have to meet. It's not that I don't want to meet you, but you know, we can actually do this <laughs> and cut out the, the two days of travel for one of us, which is really great. So I think we will have more Zoom meetings and that'll be great. We will also be able to do a lot of other things a little more effectively and that'll, that'll be great. But I think the big outcomes is, we don't want more shutdowns. And I think people have no sense. The UN, I think they must be wanting to remove that, but have, they haven't still. They've actually celebrated on their SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals site, COVID because it's cut carbon emissions by about 8%. And they're saying, this is only what we need to do every year. What people don't get is, no, it's additional every year. So you need this many lockdowns as we've had in 2020. Now you need twice as many lockdowns in 2021, three times as many in 2022, and on and on to get to zero in 2050. Nobody's going to say yes to that. We <laughs> might be able to do it one or two years, and then, of course, everybody's going to vote for Bolsonaro's instead. So the reality is, I think there's a real risk that you're setting yourself up for bad policies, but also really, really strong voter reactions. The other outcome is that while a lot of people are arguing this only shows we should spend lots, lots more money on climate, 
I think the bad outcome that we've had from COVID is that it seems like we can just run the money press and no consequences. I think most people recognize that's not true for a long time. So in reality, I think once we come out from COVID, we're going to realize we have a lot of debt, a lot of it. We're not as rich as we thought. We just simply can't keep printing money. And in that sense, of course, mm. I hope that we will start realizing, oh, wow, we have to be a little more careful with our resources. And hopefully that'll mean we'll actually end up spending money in a smarter way. I'm in no hurry to think that that's the only realistic outcome. I think it's very likely that a lot of people are just going to push for saying, coming out of the COVID crisis, this just shows that we need to amplify our, our spending on, on climate, which is just a bizarre coupling. People are arguing that COVID somehow was caused by climate change, which is just a bizarre mm-hmm. argument. I don't know if you saw Gina McCarthy, the climate advisor to Biden, saying, and she's certainly not by any means the, the first one, that climate is the biggest public health mm-hmm. issue of the 21st century or our, our time. And, and you're just like, what? You know, about a third of everyone in the world dies from heart disease, a quarter die from mm-hmm. cancer. Most of the people who die from infectious diseases die from infectious diseases that are associated with poverty. That you could possibly argue that, you know, the number I showed you, the 17,000 people that died last year from climate-related deaths would somehow outweigh the 59 million deaths we had last year, most of which are from very, very easy and predictable diseases. That's just absurd. No, if you want to have a health crisis, the issue is, is how do we make sure people are not fat? How do we make sure that people get better heart medication? How do we tackle you know, cancer? And obviously, how do we tackle some of the very, very cheap diseases like tuberculosis and malaria that each year kill more than what's killed by COVID this year? But of course, that's been happening for 100 years, so nobody cares. Again, we need to get our priorities right, and we only do that if we actually stop and say, well, not everything you can say about climate making it the worst possible outcome is true. Beyond Lombok, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands, and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus, creator meetups, networking, and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. Listener.